The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So, uh, as you probably know, I have two kids, um, ages uh, four and seven. Landon is four, and he is everything you would think a four-year-old boy, I don't know, should be or, or just is. He is, he is a force of nature. And then we have Sophia, who is the dancer, and just life is full. We, we joke, like she was born, and there was an explosion of sparkles and rainbows. And that's just kind of how life is for her. And I just look at her, and my... I just can't, um, I just, I don't know, I feel all, I don't know, it's like, if you're a dad of a daughter, you know what I'm talking about, I guess? Like, you look at your daughter, and I don't know, it's just like a soft, I don't, I don't know, like, you just smile inside, and I look at my boy, and I just kind of, sometimes I just kind of, he'll just run by and just knock him over for no reason, just because I'm like, hey, that's life, son, get used to it, and, and he loves it, he jumps back up and laughs, so I'm not abusing my child, he, he, he loves it, it's just a difference between the two kids, but I've been thinking about the future recently with them, and I don't know, I guess my wife said something this week and it made me think about how like pending for us, like not tomorrow, but pending for us is the talk. You know what I'm talking about? Like the talk. Like I'm just thinking about having to, like my daughter who's seven years old and like, like they're both fairly still in the age of innocence. Like not innocent like, like they're innocent. I mean, because they still like, they lie and cheat and steal, and you know that's just gonna. That's just hey, that's just the way that we are as people. We were born. We pop out that way. Nobody had to. Nobody had to teach you or your kids to say no, did they? Like you didn't like. I remember like when Sophia was first born, and I just she starts to grow up, and I'm like, how could this sweet little girl ever do anything wrong? And then like she starts like because that's when they're like can't really think for themselves. You know they're just kind of cute and sitting there. And then she when she starts to be able to think for herself, like all of a sudden she's got her own will and she wants to do her own thing. Nobody has to tell her to to say no or to lie or to any of those things. It just comes natural to us. And so they're, they're, when I say their age of innocence, not like totally innocent, but just like still in that kind of sweet little kid. Because the things they're lying and cheating and stealing over are pretty small things right now. It's not the big giant things. And thinking about how like having to have that talk with them is going to change their world. It kind of, I kind of recoil from that. You guys recoil from that? Like maybe you've had to tell your kids that or this, like the story. I don't want to ruin it for anybody in here. I'll just say the story in general. Like the, the like, anyway, I'll let you guys see. Ask your parent. She'll tell you whenever you leave here today, Hannah. And so, but uh like, I just recoil from having to tell my kid that, and I think, like, most of us recoil from thinking about our parents telling us that. Like, it's not a pleasant thing for either party to go through, and, and I, I was kind of thinking about, like, why is that? Why is it so weird? Because, like, like kids aren't born knowing anything. We have to tell them everything, right? Like, uh, that's part of the fun of being a parent, right? It's like explaining just basic life to the kids, and, and like, but, but why should sex be so weird? I mean, it's just a bodily function, right? Between two bodies. I don't know, again, I don't want to ruin it for you if you don't know the end of the story. But, like, it's just a bodily function, right? But why is it so weird? Because we tell our kids about other things, right? I mean, we tell our kids about how, like, I think, of, like, a lot of bodily functions are weird and gross. Like, so we, like, so we consume liquids, and a liquid comes back out of us. 
later on, right? And we have to explain to our kids how that works as best we possibly can. That's kind of weird and gross if you think about it. What's weirder and grosser is you can take something, this could go sideways, I'm going to try to keep this in the middle of the, of the fairway here, Dale. It, you, 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 you eat something that's awesome and scrumptious, like, like if God smiles on you, you get a good piece of fried chicken, or like my wife made for my birthday last month a, 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 a Tennessee whiskey, sorry Baptist, a Tennessee whiskey pecan pie. And let me tell you, that was amazing. But you eat something good and something later comes out that is not so appetizing. Are you tracking with me? That's kind of weird and gross. It's a bodily function. Like, so, so we get to tell our kids, like, you drink some things or you eat certain things, and gases come back out from inside you, up your throat, and out of your mouth, and make a noise, right? And that's a, that's a weird and gross thing, but we laugh about it, right? Because, like, remember your first time your kid, like, burps at the table, and, like, it's supposed to be gross, but everybody starts laughing because it's just so darn cute. Because that's always, burps are always funny, right? Until, unless somebody does it in your face, and then it's really gross. But, like, burps in general are always, are always funny. And then, like, certain things that you eat and drink, like, later on, Gas comes out, but it's not through the upper half of your body. It's coming out the other end, right? And, and then, like, we tell our kids about that, and it's, like, like it's hilarious. That never ends being funny. I mean, it, it's, always, it's always funny. But yet, sex is just a bodily function. Why should it be so weird? And why is it? Is because sex is kind of different, isn't it? You might believe this whole, like, God thing isn't really real and, like, uh, sex is just a, a bodily function that we're driven to have in order to propagate the, the species. But if, if you even think that, do you really act like it? We're a people, and this isn't exclusive to modern America, as we'll see here in this passage, that uh, Katie read for us, but we're a people that are preoccupied with sex because there's just something different about it. The atmosphere around us is charged with it. We're like fish who swim in a sea of sexuality. You think about it, if an alien visited our planet and saw the way that we relate to sex, what would he think? You might tell them that it's just a bodily appetite that we have in order to procreate and propagate the species, but if he started to look at our daily life, like what would he see? If, if he listened to our songs, what would he think? Aren't most of our songs about either straight up sex or romance or the one who got away or how somebody has broken your heart at all, almost always has to do with romance or sex? Or if he watched our entertainment, it's littered through it, right? I mean, I mean can, you, can you watch almost anything without it being charged with sexuality in it? If he saw our ads, have you guys seen our ads recently? Like, we sell everything with sex. Hardee's now sells burgers with sex. Like a model eating a giant burger and like, hey, I want me one of those or both of those. 
Uh, we was like, we, we, sell, we, sell, we sell razors by saying to people like, hey, if you use this five-bladed razor, then you're going to get more chicks. If you drink this light beer, you're going to appear hotter to the person of the opposite sex. Like all kinds of crazy things like that aren't really related to sex or romance. Like we sell them using sex and romance. What would this alien who came like outside of our world and doesn't think and doesn't swim in our ocean of sexuality, what would he think if he came to our world and saw the way that we relate to sex? The way we watched our entertainment, if he watched our entertainment, if he saw our ads, if he overheard our daily conversations with each other, if he noticed our search history, if he observed our interactions with each other, if he saw our clubs, our peep shows, our internet traffic. By the way, 30% of online internet traffic is porn. Just, that's kind of interesting. 30%, if he saw our internet traffic, I think he would have to come to a different conclusion. There's something different about sex. What if we treated our other appetites like we do sex? What if 30% of our web traffic was illicit pictures of unwrapped food, like close-up so you could just stare at it for hours and hours? What if, what if 30% of our internet traffic was like videos of someone eating food, like close-up? What if there were blogs devoted to hot food of athletes? What if every, was, have you ever, every, like, typed an athlete into a search box? Like, the first thing that pops up is so-and-so's wife or so-and-so's girlfriend before their stats. What if every song was about a desire to eat food or about the pie that got away or if we paid money to see people unwrap a burger slowly in front of us or, or to eat a great looking piece of cake in front of us or, or, or we sold razors with the promise that it would help you eat more burgers. That sounds kind of weird and disgusting and sick, doesn't it? But yet, somehow, this is the place that sex has in our lives and in our culture. Because you see, sex is important and different than other appetites that we have. It's important and more, it's more important and different than the other drives and desires we have because it was made to be different. It was made to be more important. Because there's something that sex points to that is greater than what it is. In this passage in uh, 1 Corinthians, when Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, it's a very interesting passage because most of the time whenever, look, it's no secret what the church in general, what the Christian church believes about sex, right? I mean, most of you guys here have been around, even if you didn't grow up in church, like you know, this is what Christians believe about sex. You have sex inside marriage between a man and a woman, otherwise don't do it. But there's really, uh, there's really kind of two general camps about sex. Now, I touched on this uh, uh, about a month or so ago, but there's one camp of and these, these camps have been around. We see them in our American society right now, but they've been around a long time, and Paul is addressing them here, actually, in the church of Corinth. 
There's this one idea that was, uh, in the time that he was writing to the church of Corinth, who was a, a Greek city, there was a, a, a Greek uh, philosophy that came out of Plato's, the Pla- Plato and the, Pla- the Platonists, who believed that, like, this world is kind of inherently, like, it's, it's, it's a lowly place, and, and the spiritual is higher and more important. And so everything that has to do with like this world and the physical realm, like it's inherently kind of broken and kind of messed up. And what we tr- are trying to do is we're trying to reach a, a higher level of living where we kind of can transcend this kind of earthly realm and get up into the spiritual realm and be kind of spiritual people. And, and this, kind of, this kind of view is the kind of view that we see in the church today and even in modern American society where we kind of have this idea that sex is sort of some, something that's inherently evil, inherently kind of dirty. It's a, it's a necessary evil. Like, I get married and we have to have sex, you know, it's Saturday night so we got to do this thing and can I leave my socks on tonight and, you know, it, whatever the case may be, like, like, let's just get this over with, like it's a pill that I have to swallow, right? Because I, I get up, I'm getting old now, I'm 30. 37, and uh, I have to take like these pills and vitamins and stuff in this morning. Uh, it, things happen as you get older. Things become more necessary, and like some some of us view like sex is sort of like that. It's just a just something I have to kind of do in order to get it out of the way. Like I wake up in the morning and I have to go to the bathroom, and so once a week or so, whatever I decide with my wife, like is the most that she can stand, is the longest I can go. Like we'll do it, and then we'll get it over with, and then we'll move on. But that's not the view that Paul has about sex as he's writing the church at Corinth here. Then there's this other view about sex. We'll call it the liberated view. At the time, this time, it was a whole whole other element of Greek culture that we won't get into too much where it says like, hey, look, uh, it's, it was called hedonism. It says like, hey, just do whatever feels good. If you have an appetite to eat, then you eat. If you have an appetite to... Uh, to go to sleep, you go to sleep. If you have an appetite, you feel sexy, you go do sex. Like you get hungry, you eat, you get sexy, you do sex. Like that's just what, that's what you do. You feel, the appetite is there in order to be filled. And like just as like you don't want to eat too much because it, you might hurt yourself, like you put yourself in some trouble, you don't, you got to have to kind of govern the appetite somewhat, but the appetite is there in order to be filled. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it is either. Because see, the problem is that you and I, have generally, no matter how far away you might think you're from sexual immorality at this point, you and I generally have sort of made up our own rules and our own thinking about sex. And it flavors all of our life because sex is different and more important than every other appetite. And what you think and feel and the... uh, practices that you have regarding your sexuality reach every corner of your life. Paul writes the church at Corinth, and we'll read the passage again. In verse 15 of chapter 6, he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's talking to Christians here. So that, shall that I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two become one flesh. So there we already see, like, Paul is saying that there is a something different about sex. 
that there's a, a bond that comes with sex. Let me finish the passage and we'll come back and unpack that a little bit. But he, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Therefore, flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. A couple of thoughts there. One is, like, it just sort of seems to be like the, the Christian's kind of line, right? Like, flee sexual immorality. Don't, you know, don't do sex is kind of what it seems to be saying. But then... He also says something that's very important. He says, do not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. So he's saying that we don't have, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, you don't have the right to make up your own thinking about what you should and should not think about sex. It's already determined for you. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote, so what we think, we don't have the letter that the church at Corinth wrote to Paul. We think that he wrote them, they wrote him something like this. They're asking him some questions, and they said, so basically, now that we're spiritual, we're Christians, because they're thinking like along this way of the way the, the Platonists had thought before them, because all of us no matter how long you've been in church, no matter how long you've been a Christian, your thinking about sex is influenced by the culture around you. You and I are inherently broken in the way that we think about sex. Let's just own that right now. Every person in this room is inherently broken about the way that we think about sex. It is made to be something that's different and greater than every other appetite that we have. But yet, because of sin, you and I are inherently broken in the the way that we think about it. And we have picked up ways of thinking about sex from people around us, the culture at large, our dad or our mom or uh, buddies at high school or in college or entertainment or music or poetry or movies or wherever you've picked it up, you and I have picked up and we've sort of meshed it all together into some thinking about our sexuality that is inherently broken in itself. And Paul was writing to them and he said, now concerning the matters about which he wrote, He's answering the question they had to him, like, hey, isn't it better for us just to not have sex at all if, if, uh, if it's so easy to fall into sexual immorality? And he's quoting them here when he says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul's not saying that. He's quoting their letter to him where they said, hey, isn't this true? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's sort of like belief beneath him. It's sort of because in, sex is of this world and it's inherently kind of dirty and evil and broken. Like we shouldn't just do it. But Paul says in verse 2, but because of the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife. Now that wording there, have his own wife, it means have his own. That doesn't mean like to be married. It means like have his own wife. Wife. You guys tracking with me? What he's saying there? All right. I'm trying not to get in trouble with Dale over here with things that I'm going to say in this in this pat this message. I feel like I'm already on the bad list. Got like two checks beside my name over here with Daddy. But because the temptation has sexual morality, each man should have have his own wife and each woman her own 
husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. You know what he's saying? In the first part of the passage, he's saying flee sexual immorality. But in the second part of the passage, he says, when you're married, go for it. Do it. Have each other and have fun. Because you know what? The Bible is incredibly and embarrassingly frank about sexuality. There's a man, he was a teacher at Yale University in the 1950s, and he did a study about what the Puritans, about what the Puritans taught about sex. And he published this study, and he, or tried to publish the study. He went to the, to the university for them to publish it, and the university press told them they would not publish the study because of the, the mid-1950s, what the Puritans taught about sex was too frank to be published in the 1950s. When you, look at scripture, when you look at Scripture, it is embarrassingly frank about sex. Anybody ever read the Song of Songs? You might call it the Song of Solomon. Like, it's, it's poetry, and so for some of us, it may not be real clear what it's talking about. Sometimes it's very clear, but it's talking about, like, a man really enjoying a woman and a woman really enjoying her man in very poetic but yet frank terms. Like it goes in specific terms about enjoying specific parts about each other's bodies. I had an a assistant pastor growing up at my, at my church, and he and his wife, this might sound weird, but he and his wife would read the Song of Solomon to each other in bed as sort of a like, uh, hey, let this get this going kind of deal in bed. In Proverbs, though, Though the teacher is encouraging his student to flee sexual immorality, he's very clear about how following the prostitute in her, to her house is the way to hell, but yet at the same time, he encourages him, enjoy, excuse me, but I just, enjoy the breasts of the wife of your youth. The Bible is startlingly and incredibly frank about sex between a man and a woman. It doesn't say it's something broken and dirty that we shouldn't be a part of. It says it's something that's beautiful and lovely. But why is it giving us these, these instructions here? First of all, because sex is powerful. First of all, because sex is powerful. Think about it. Isn't they're a powerful draw between two people who are attracted to each other. Like, it's kind of scary sometimes how powerful it is. It will make a man do crazy things that he will never do again. You remember when you were first in love with the woman you're in love with now, woman you're married to now, or your last time you were in love with somebody? You remember the crazy things that you did early on whenever you were trying to court her and get to know her? Remember, like, how much money you would spend on her? Do you remember how much time you would spend getting your car just right and opening the door for her and buying her things? Do you remember the restaurants you would take her then that you wouldn't even think about taking her to now? 
Do you remember how you would dress and how you would prepare yourself? You would like actually shave and take a shower and like wear nice clothes. Do you remember like how far you would drive if she was out of town? Anybody ever courted somebody who was in school in a different city? How you would drive to see her even for an hour or two, even knowing you have to drive back in the middle of the night? We do crazy things. And part is because you're in love, but part is because that, that attraction and that draw. If I could see her, if I could touch her, if I could caress her face, and it's worth driving two hours if I could get a nice, I mean like a really nice kiss from her or more. Like there's a powerful draw that's inherent in sexuality. When there's an attraction between a man and a woman, you'll do some crazy, crazy things. Not only is there a powerful draw, but there's a powerful bond that happens. No matter how much we may treat in modern America the idea that sexuality is just a a bodily function between two people, that we have an appetite, and you have an appetite, so let's take care of this appetite together, and it's no big deal, we can move on. If anybody's experienced extramarital or premarital sex, you know that that's just not the way it works. Remember the first time you had sex? There's a powerful bond between two people, but it doesn't exist otherwise. I mentioned it before, but if you ever run into an ex that you weren't sexually active with a few years later, it might be slightly awkward, but it's not a big deal. If you ever run into an ex that you were sexually active with a few years later, that's, that junk is weird because there's a bond between two people who have sex that's more powerful, it's different than any other kind of bond. Sex is powerful, it can do great harm. If anybody here has ever been, and undoubtedly you are, stats are true, have been sexually abused or molested, that's way different than any other kind of abuse or neglect or molestation. It scars you, it hurts you, it damages you deeper and different than any other kind. Why? Because sex is different and it's powerful. Anybody ever, or you know of, experienced you or person you're in a relationship with stepping out on you sexually, it's very different. It can cause great harm. But also, it's, sex is powerful. It can, it can do great good. <clears throat> sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage creates this sort of like this this power and this bond between them. I've heard it described as like marriage, uh, which by the way, marriage is kind of crazy in itself and we don't have time to get into it. We're gonna be talking about it this month, but marriage is, is, is an intense thing to be a part of. It's, it's like you take two rocks and you put them in a tumbler together. You ever like seen like one of those gym tumblers kind of thing that you get for Christmas and then it breaks a few weeks later or you never play with it, but you put two gems together, two rocks in a tumbler and you tumble them, like those rocks like beat up against each other and that's what marriage is like. 
Like you, you just like get in there and you like beat up against each other and you're wearing off the, the hard, craggy, hard, uh, pointy areas of each other. And that, that's, that junk gets hard. That stuff, is, that stuff is difficult. It's the hardest thing you will ever do. The marriage covenant is sort of like the, the, the outside of the tumbler that holds it all in together. And sex is sort of the compound that you put in there together. There are some types of rocks that if you put them in the tumbler and you just leave them tumbling together, they'll crack each other. So you have to put a, a compound in there so that they don't crack each other. And that's what sex is like within the commitment of marriage. It's the compound that keeps, while you're breaking those hard parts off each other, you're knocking each other against each other, like you're trying to work out, like I have a will and you have a will, and it's like knocking against each other all the time. Sex is the compound that makes it run just a little bit smoother, just keeps you from absolutely breaking each other. Sex is powerful because the more power something yields, the greater good and bad it can affect. Think about it. Which... uh, If you hear about somebody who was in a an accident in a golf cart, and you hear somebody who was in an accident in a Lamborghini, which is going to be worse? A Lamborghini is faster and more powerful. And that's what sex is. Sex is more powerful. It's one of the most powerful appetites that you yield. And it can do great good, but it can do great harm at the same time to you and the people around you. Sex is powerful, and then sex also has a unique place, has a unique place in our life. As I mentioned before, religion has tended to say that sex is a necessary evil, and irreligion has tended to say that sex is just an appetite to be filled and governed like any other appetite. But Paul is saying that sex is neither a dirty chore nor a recreation, but a unique celebration of intimacy and security within a covenant of commitment. I want to read that again to you. Paul is saying that sex is neither a dirty chore nor a recreation, but a unique celebration of intimacy and security within a covenant of commitment. Because sex uniquely opens us up to somebody else, it creates a powerful bond between two people. That's why it should only be yielded in the context of a covenantal commitment between two people. Because you think about the first couple that God created, created man and created, created woman, Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam was, God gave him a job. He was a powerful dude. He was, had the corner office. He was the, I mean, he was kind of king of the world, right? He's named the animals. He's like got a pretty cool deal going on. And, and, that, and yet God looks at him and says, it's not good for man to be alone. I'm going to make a help meet helpmate for him, and he, puts, he knocks Adam out, takes out a rib, creates this woman, so this Adam who's sort of masculine and got this whole deal going on, all of a sudden he sees for the first time a woman, and poetry is born. The boy writes a poem. He sings. It's the first poetry in the Bible, which I would too, right? You ever seen, I mean, because Adam was, by the way, not wearing any clothes. Eve was not wearing any clothes. The first woman in all her resplendent glory, he sees her in the garden and he sings a song to her. <laughs> uh, I won't get in trouble. I'll just leave it at that. He, see, he sings a song to her. 
<laughs> sorry. But he sings a song to her, and it says that they were naked and not ashamed with each other. That's what marriage is supposed to be. A covenantal relationship between two people who can be naked and not ashamed with each other. Not just physically, but emotionally, personally, with each other. See, what the way that we tend to think about relationships is, hey, I'll be married to you or I'll be in a relationship with you as long as it works for me. And then when it's not working for me anymore, I'm going to move on. But that doesn't create an environment where you can be naked and not ashamed with each other. The idea of covenant, which is what marriage is, is a solemn vow between two people that says that this, we are married together, we are together no matter what. And whenever you have that as the basis for your relationship, then you can be free and real with each other. And when you put on a few extra pounds or you shave off your beard or you're growing a beard or, or you know, you're having a bad day, your breast stinks, they're not going to leave you because things aren't just perfect. Because there's a pre-commitment that we are together. And in that environment, you can be naked and not ashamed, figuratively and Literally. Sex uniquely points, this is the unique position that it has in our lives, sex uniquely points to our pending and complete union with God. One day he's returning. In the Bible, when it talks about the church and it talks about God, it uses phrases like, like marriage. It says that he is our bridegroom and we are the bride. In the Old Testament, it calls Israel his bride, and he's the husband. In the New Testament, he calls the church the bride of Christ. And it says one day, whenever he comes again, what happens? It's called the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will celebrate our union with God. And the ecstasy that is in sex is to be a holy ecstasy. It is so wonderful exactly because it is so holy because it's pointing to the consummation of all things. When for believers, our eternal life will be a life of continual ecstasy that sex only points towards now. It's like a really good, really good appetizer for the meal that's coming. Therefore, there's only one type of soil in which it can flourish towards its full potential. The covenant of marriage creates a commitment where we can be truly naked and not ashamed. Sex is powerful. Sex has a unique place. Sex is good, but not ultimate. Sex is made to be like a signpost. Remember I just said that it's pointing towards the consummation of all things. It's like an appetizer for the meal that is getting ready to come. But because it's like an appetizer, because it's like a signpost pointing to something greater, it's not the ending. It's a signpost that's pointing to something else, but it is not the destination. What happens if you pass by a sign that says, like, you know, I'm going to be going on vacation in a few weeks. We're going to Disney World. If I pass by a sign that says Disney World this way, 50 miles, and I stop there, and we camp underneath and say, kids, get out. The sign says Disney World. We're here. That's just stupid. 
The kids are going to be very, very disappointed because the signpost is not the destination. It points to something else. Sex is a signpost that points to the ultimate thing. It is good. It is very good. It is great, but it is not the destination. If we make it the destination, things get out of whack. Do you remember your first, uh, your first school or class or uh, youth group? I, I did youth ministry for a while, and so I'm very well acquainted with youth group field trips. Um, it, it, as sort of like a middle schooler, you remember like that, that, it didn't matter where you're going. You might be 20 miles away, but there was always that obligatory stop at a convenience store. You guys remember that? And because it was like a bathroom break, but everybody piled out and you, like some poor clerk who did not know you were coming, all of a sudden is inundated by 30 middle schoolers whose parent had given them a little bit of cash. And when you're a middle schooler and you get cash for the first time and you stop at a store, you know, there's going to be some purchasing. You're going to buy some two or three, like, Mountain Dews, like, whatever, like, your, your parents say you can't drink normally. You're going to buy some two or three packs of candy, which is what Dale does anyway. Anytime he stops at a convenience store, the boy loves some candy. Oh, and, and or you're going to buy a pack of Doritos, Cool Ranch, or, uh, or the nacho cheese, or some corn chips. Anything that will make the van or bus smell really, really bad whenever you get all the middle schoolers in there eating and drinking all this stuff at the same time. But you sort of get some money in your pocket, and you get in the store, and you, you just go hog wild. Why? Because you can't. And that's kind of what we do with sex. We don't usually put a lot of forethought or reason into it. We just jump in and go hog wild. Why? Because we can. And afterwards, just like those middle schoolers who get home and they drank those three sodas and ate two packs of Doritos and burped all in that side of that bus, those poor leaders had to smell it the whole way back. And all of a sudden, they, they get home, they have a stomach ache, and they feel terrible. We feel terrible afterwards. That's what happens when we make something that's good, but not the ultimate thing, the ultimate thing. It's what happens when we take the signpost and we make it the destination. Sex is glory. It's glorious. And it's a foretaste of glory, but it's only a signpost that points to where the true glory, ecstasy, and eternity is found. Because you see, sex points to something more powerful, totally unique, and ultimately good. Our union with God now as believers and the final consummation that is to come. We should celebrate it, we should enjoy it, but we cannot move the signpost or treat it like it's a destination. We can't come up with our own thinking about it, we can't come up with our own philosophy about it. We can either say it's a, a, ter- a, a dirty thing that is to be like approached like a chore, nor sh- should we view it as something that's simply, excuse me, recreational. It's something that points to something more powerful totally unique, and ultimately good. In closing, what would it look like 
if an alien who didn't have our hang-ups, our qualms, our perversions about sex came and lived among us? He did. His name was Jesus. He came and he experienced every temptation that you and I have experienced. He didn't fall to any of them. And in the end, he gave his life in order to unite us to the Father, which is the union that sex is meant to point towards and celebrate. And his redemption of the cross of our lives is a redemption of our sexuality in itself. And it offers to us a reprogramming of our sexuality. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, I'd like for you to consider how awesome sex is, but yet how broken we have made it. And how that is pointing us or should be pointing to us to the one for whom we were really made. When you experience sex outside of marriage and it doesn't really satisfy those longings that lo- of, for union with somebody that desperate tried to get out of our sense of loneliness. I pray you would see this morning that you've been reun- offered, reunited, to be reunited with the Father for whom you're created. For those of us here who have sexually active and been sexually active outside of marriage, you to hear that there's redemption offered for you through Jesus Christ. That your life isn't ruined, you aren't marred, but he came to redeem you and I from our brokenness. And like for us as a community of people to commit ourselves to over the next few weeks to begin to reprogram our minds in the way that we think about sex and the way we think about singleness, relationships, and marriage. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.